Hey everybody, we are super pleased to announce our new sponsor, Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. The goal? Power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. And the best part? Marvel Strike Force just reached its six-year anniversary, which means free stuff when you sign up via our unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. Just complete each event, and you'll receive special awards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and every week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. If we have received a unique promo code for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Anonymous. It's a podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris. And this is Anthony. And this is episode 455, Bad Games That We Like Way Too Much. We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, friends, we're back. And of course, we knew this day would come. We actually, in fact, Anthony, have to talk about the bad games that we like a little too much, you know. Yeah, no, we, last week was all about that negative energy, and uh, people were digging it, actually, so nice. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but this week, we're going to bring back the positive. We're going to talk about games that historically have not been considered great, but that we personally really enjoy. Yeah, a lot of those games out there that the popular consensus, or better known as BGG's yes. ratings out there, have said, eh, meh. I don't know, or any other kind of disapproving sound. And yet, on our side, we're like, ha ha! So, take that as you will. There's a rating in there. There's numerical averages and things and decimal points. Yeah, yeah. And I I think now we have to do a future episode of just Chris making those sounds. I I think it's going to be a thing. I'll say a game, you make a sound, and we'll just walk our way through it. It'll be great. it's, It's qualitative versus quantitative. 
Yes. And I think sometimes we just talked about this off off mic about our ra- our number ratings and how it d- how it connects to certain games that we like and dislike. But honestly, sometimes I think a good meh, I think, you know, says more than a six. That's all I'm saying. Yes. Yes, it does. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Because my six is not the same as your six, no. as we have just learned. Yeah. You know, and then once you get to the decimal points and eh, all that kind of stuff or. Yeah. You know, or if you're talking about weights of games. You know, so I'm like, ugh, yeah, that's a, ugh. <laughs> you guys are playing that? Oh, good luck. <laughs> so, yeah, that's how we, that's how we rate weights of games. How, how crunchy, how heavy, how complex they are by just like the guttural sound of just like, oh, I have to lift that? Ugh. Or, oh, you're playing uh, Love Letter. Oh, all right. <laughs> it's like. I could easily lift that. My my voice is very high and bouncy, so that game is not heavy at all. 18 double X. Yeah. Right. yeah. <laughs> even even I'll give it uh for that. Yeah. <laughs> I was at a game night on Wednesday and I love 18XX, but like this group does not they're they're not playing that. We played Stone Age in Las Vegas. Oh boy. So yeah, no, it's not <laughs> a heavy group. And, and one of the guys was like, I got heavy games. I got heavy games. I'm like, oh, yeah, like, like what kind of heavy games? And he's like, Viticulture. Oh, my and God. Goodness like, gracious. Oh, okay, okay. You're like, like, you heard, like, heavy train games? You've heard of, like, heavy train games? I'm like, oh, God, what kind of heavy train games are we talking about? Um, yeah, so let me, let me ask you this, Ant. Like, Yeah, because you're going in for one game night, and you've been promised heavy, and then you get light. So it's like when you try to lift a box, you think it's going to be really heavy and it just flies up in the air. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, to be fair, they did not promise heavy. I knew we were going to be playing stone age. So that's fine. Um, but it's funny to have those conversations with people who are like, I'm a heavy gamer. I'm like, Oh yeah. Like what kind of games? And then they list things that I would, you and I would consider not heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that's not a bad thing. That's just, everybody's got their own scale. That's the whole point, right? We're all kind of coming from somewhere different. Yeah. So, uh, if you say 18xx, we're like, oh, okay. And <laughs> other people might just collapse and fall into a coma. Yeah. Who knows? Now, 18 double X or real war games, which is heavier? Oh, it so I'm gonna say on the heavier end of things, real war games, because some of those are ridiculous, right? Like I got you had Mr. President, yes. right? Which I picked up from you at PAX. That was um, heavy. <laughs> that, yeah, physically very heavy. Yes. I opened the box. It has six rule books. Ooh. And the game takes six to eight hours to play. And I'm pretty sure it's going to take me six to eight hours to learn. There are no 18xx games that are that long or that complicated to learn. And those entertain six people. Whereas this will entertain just me. Me by myself. Aww. So, uh, and that's not a war game, but it's by a war game designer. So. I'm going to go war game. I think they're probably more complex at the higher yeah. level. Um, nice. But until also maybe just two or three people too. So I don't know. It's, until it until the mashup comes over, right? Until they mash those two games up. Right. <laughs> 18xx. Like, all right, move my train. All right. And then a bunch of soldiers hop off and then they, they burn down your tracks. And <laughs> <laughs> ah, good times. Good times. Anyhow. Until that crossover happens, let's get on with the episode, because we we do have a fun list of of games that we like, again, way too much versus what everyone says about those games. So uh, it's now our time to to take our beating. Speaking of beating, Anthony, Hasbro, uh, supposedly they took a beating in their sales of toys. 
certain divisions in their toy company not doing the best, honestly, because inflation, things are expensive. Right. And, you know, people buy and do things online now, if, if you haven't heard. Yeah, I mean, my kids have never been toy kids because they grew up starting in 2011. Um, I've always been surprised that these companies still make money, honestly, because my kids, I'm like, what what toys do you want for Christmas? And maybe my one of my youngest will be like, oh, this would be fun. But most of the time, I want electronics. I want sports equipment. I want to go places. They, they don't really care about toys. Sure. Um, I don't think that's unique to my family. I think generally when there are little tiny boxes that they can hold that do everything, why do they want a piece of plastic that does one thing? Yeah. I think it's more us, right? It's yeah. more the, the millennial Gen X and the boomers who still want the physical representations of the things they love when they were kids. Yes. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. And, you know, then we're buying less because of inflation. And yes. <laughs> the toys are more expensive. Um, honestly, like, I feel like Hasbro was being propped up for a while. And I don't have data to support this. I just have the, the information in front of me about their layoffs. But I feel like they're being supported for a long time by Wizards. Yes. Right? That's and like that's... their most successful brand. It's their most successful. Like Dungeons and Dragons and Magic the Gathering makes most of Hasbro's profit. Yeah, we've reported on this over the last couple of years, too, about how tabletop gaming has been consistently the highest uh, growth market in the toy game hobby uh, industry, right? Like, that's the sector you really want to focus on because it's just has, you know, infinite growth, right? Look at Kickstarter, right? We'll we'll talk about Nemesis in a second, but it's just growing by leaps and bounds. Last year in 2022, Hasbro made... Um, their net revenues was approximately $5.86 billion. So obviously Dungeons and Dragons was doing incredible. Their games were doing incredible. Barbie the movie came out this year. So they're not hurting. That's what the funny part is to this. So they're laying off another 1,100 workers, but they're making tremendous amounts of money more than ever. And we've also talked about Magic the Gathering, of course, and how the board is or who the powers that may be are seeking to double and triple and quadruple their profits. We see this with a lot of the Marvel stuff, right? Like, oh, Endgame made <clears throat> X number of billions of dollars. Every other movie should do that now. And it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not really reasonable. And that's the same thing. Like Magic the Gathering makes whatever it makes crazy amounts of money. Let's make more. Let's try to make that across the board with all the different IPs they're putting out. Love the IPs. That's fun and awesome, but also problematic for just Magic the Gather in general. So when they announced these layoffs, which was announced on top of earlier layoffs, it was shocking because, again, Barbie was like the biggest movie of the year in some respects based on some of the proclamations and the proclaim and all the money and the stuff like that. And and Magic the Gathering, the D&D movie came out and Dungeons and Dragons is, is about to hit its 50th year anniversary and they were just like we are laying off all of these people and it's coming across the board they're not just taking out a industry so people not buying play-doh i get it but they're cutting across the board and a lot of really important people yeah yeah and and like to to put it in context and to be fair like barbie is mattel right and they actually made money this year yeah (laughs) because of barbie um Whereas Hasbro, like all their big brands, they didn't really do anything this year, right? So 
it, it does go to show like you could sell toys if you do the work that needs is necessary to promote those things. Like Hasbro has Transformers. When was the last big successful Transformers thing we had? Yeah. It's been a while. Like the last movie that came over the summer. My son loves it, but nobody went to watch that movie. So it it's there's a lot of pieces involved. Um, but yeah, if if you're being propped up by a collectible card game as a <laughs> as a company, probably you're not doing great because as successful as magic can be, as successful as Dungeons and Dragons can be, it's still relatively niche as we have learned, yeah. right? <laughs> like well, this like is a, not Yeah. Like you said about the Barbie, like the idea that these toys can have big impact. Hasbro has a lot of these major properties, Monopoly, Play-Doh, My Little Pony, and other stuff. And it's just, it's surprising to see this, and it's going to hit a lot of indus- a lot of their different departments across the board. Yeah. Now, who's it not hitting, Anthony? There's a, there's a little GameFound campaign that made a, a couple of bucks here and there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, the, the funny thing is, we, t- we talk about these things, and then you have the companies that make all the monies. Um, so over on GameFound, which is, by the way, owned by Awaken Realms, and therefore they kind of have premier advertising and promotion across the board. Like, for some reason, I was following this campaign, even though there's no reason I would have followed this campaign. Um, uh, the Nemesis, what was it? Retaliation, I think, yes. was the name of this one. Yep. And they, it's a new version of Nemesis, so whatever. But <laughs> as part of that, you could buy all the old content. which. Yes. For many campaigns, can be very hard to do. Not like a lot of companies won't let you do that. Mm-hmm. But Awaken Realms has always been pretty good about that. If they have a new version, you can go back and buy the old stuff. Uh, it was nine hundred dollars to get all the stuff, but nobody seemed to care because a lot of people still spent that money. So uh, the total amount of money made on this campaign was twelve point one million dollars from forty one thousand backers. <laughs> $12.1 million for this big, not even a box of plastic, like a, a freight truck full of plastic. Wow. Um, in this non-IP related alien clone of a board game. Yeah. I haven't played it. It's, nope, me neither. It's, <laughs> I, and I and I guess the funny part is, is why haven't I seen this at any game night? And I guess the answer is it's just too big to get to game nights. It is. It's enormous. Yeah, I've seen it at conventions. It takes up a lot of space. Yeah. I mean, Awaken Realms knows miniatures. I mean, they're better They're better known for their miniatures these days than Simon. They're just, yeah. just outrageous, beautiful, well-detailed stuff. And I, the people have spoken, my friend. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's nuts. It's a lot of, it's a lot of stuff going on here. Um, I, I don't know. It's, it's a funny thing. Whether it's because like they own the platform, they can do what they want with it, or if it's the fact that you know Nemesis has just become this like sleeper hit, yeah. Which I keep saying that like, and it, part of it's just because we haven't played it, I guess. Mm-hmm. But this is like a top fifty game on yeah. Board Game Geek, and it just kind of comes out of nowhere for me. Like, mm-hmm. when did that happen? How did that happen? <laughs> but it happened. Yeah, and this is put to put us in a little context. Frosthaven, which is the the highest funded game on kickstarter raised 12.9 million dollars so right there it's right there a couple hundred thousand dollars which seems crazy but right there as far as the amount of money raised for a campaign so right 
And in a lot of ways, those games are somewhat similar and then obviously could not be more different. No. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, yeah. What I find really interesting about this is like GameFound is it's kind of, I mean, they've been coming up for a while, but now they, they seem to be surpassing Kickstarter in some ways. Like mm. you have this being like one of the highest crowdfunded tabletop games of all time, but you also have Simon is bringing over some of their old campaigns into GameFound. I noticed that too, yeah. Yeah, they they relaunched Deceased, the uh, DC zombie game, yeah. in GameFound with the price intact. Like, you're paying the same price you paid on Kickstarter mm-hmm. with a late pledge. They're also relaunching Masters of the Universe. I saw that too, um, yeah. Coming up, I'm not entirely sure when. So, are they switching over? Because they have been a huge cash cow for Kickstarter for a decade, and now maybe they're on GameFound? I don't know. I mean, I, I know that Kickstarter has this thing that you can't do another campaign on the same thing, right? Like that's why a lot of, you know, later campaigns have like barely an expansion that they're promoting. Right. It's like, right. It's like, Oh, there's a new expansion for this game that you can back. (laughs) Plus you could back the base game again. And, you know, so it gives people an opportunity to back the game again. And the expansion is not really that essential or major. It's just an excuse, you know, Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, there's a lot of games on GameFound. I'll be honest, like early on, I was kind of annoyed by that because games would pop back on GameFound and they would be like, you know, 10 to $50 more expensive than Kickstarter. And it was a difference of like two weeks. <laughs> it's just like, and now mm. it's on GameFound. You're like, well, I feel dumb. <laughs> just like, it's here, but it's more expensive. And okay. So yeah, I guess it's a thing these days. It's a thing. Or supposedly yeah. something. Yeah, yeah. I don't know enough about it to like talk about it further than what we said, but it's it's an interesting thing to just see because Kickstarter for the longest time that was the eight hundred pound gorilla in the yeah. room. It's Kickstarter. You go in Kickstarter, and now GameFound seems to be taking a little bit of Kickstarter's lunch. And because tabletop games is the biggest category on Kickstarter, I'll be interested to see how Kickstarter responds to that. Yeah, it, it must be something behind the scenes, like a um, like percentage that they have to pay Kickstarter. That's my assumption there. It's just a better deal because I'm looking um, on the underground. That was that's coming out. We've we've seen that before. Secrets of the Lost Tomb. We've seen that before. Ice. We've Mm -hmm. seen that before. You mentioned Deceased. We've obviously Mm -hmm. seen that before. Feudum. Masters of the Universe. Another version of Coliseum coming out again. Uh, You know, it's just there's all these kind of fun stuff. But. Oh, Heroes of Land, Air and Sea. Yeah. And, and obviously they had the big one recently was Food Chain Magnet. Yeah, yeah. Which came out just on this platform. So Right. Yeah, I'll be interested to see like how this affects Kickstarter. Like if they legit lose Simon, I think that's a big deal. Sure. I mean, they're the 800 pound gorilla on that that platform with all that with all those miniatures. I don't think anyone else is bringing consistently that much money. Yeah, it's five to ten million dollars a year directly. And like I don't know what Kickstarter's revenue cut is. I haven't looked into that, but I'm sure it's at least a million dollars. It's crazy amounts of money. That's all. <laughs> yeah, all the money is. I know we're talking about all, like, like, why are we doing this? Let's go do. Let's go run a crowdfunding site. Jeez. <laughs> well, speaking about all the monies, Anthony. Let's say by chance I wanted to play a game on Steam, a board game on Steam. Oh yes. Would I have to pay all the monies? Because come on, it's a digital copy of a board game that's already out. Come on, right? 
Oh, it depends on what game you want to play. What game is it that you would like to play, sir? I don't know. I was thinking something from this year, something that's, let's say, unmatched. Ooh, that's all the monies. Oh, no. How could that be, my friend? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Um, Yeah, this is from Acrim Digital with Restoration Games and Unmatched, which is a very popular two-player dueling game based on Star Wars Epic Duels from 2002. It's a 20-plus-year-old game, but Restoration Games brings those things back as they do. Um, With all sorts of different IP characters and classic literature characters, you have just hundreds of different possible characters. You got Sherlock Holmes and Bigfoot and Dracula and Robin Hood and everything in between. Um, And they've released individual packs for dozens of these. Like, if you buy these physically, it is a lot of money. But, but... (laughs) <laughs> how much do you think all that should cost digitally? That's the question. How much should it cost digitally, Chris? What do you think? I think it should cost less. I think it should cost less in the board game. Yeah, I understand that there's development that goes into creating a video game. I'm not dumb. But considering the fact that I'm not getting physical components and, you know, board game stuff you can generally get at a relatively decent good price. I don't know. Like... for a two-player. I mean, a two-player game is pretty much like very small. $10 for a game. I think that's the maximum I would ever play for the game. And that would come with all the current updated characters, right? Oh, yeah. No, definitely. That's what it should be. Um, So so it's not what you're getting. Oh, no. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So if you want this game just by itself, it's $20. Okay. Right. But I get all the characters. I get all the expansions. You should, right? 20 bucks? You should. 20. For 20, you should. Yeah. You don't. You don't. I'm sorry. 21? I'm so, no. 22? No. 22.50. More? 22.75. So much more. Oh, no. <laughs> Triple that. Uh, yeah, it's $75, my friend, for all the stuff that is currently available. Uh, Keeping in mind, too, that this is all the stuff that's currently available for which they have the license, which is nothing interesting because yeah. it's all stuff that's out of copyright, like Robin Hood and Bigfoot and Dracula and Sherlock Holmes, like things they could just do. So it's not even like they're paying licensing fees to it's not the Marvel Disney stuff? or no, none of the Marvel stuff. Oh, geez. Nothing, like it's just and not that any of these things are bad, like Sherlock Holmes versus Jekyll and Hyde or Invisible Man. That's cool. Yeah. I like that. But not for $75. I don't like that. <laughs> Come on. Uh, <laughs> no. There's There are legitimate season passes. Oh, like, and, and not like... that's it, Video games have been doing that forever. But like for a digital version of a board game, you're doing a season pass? Seriously? They are. Like actually? Uh, yeah. All right. Well... I guess you have to have Nemesis money to play board games or online board games these days. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, don't buy this because if you buy this, no one else is going to have it because no one else is going to pay for this. <laughs> like, Well, you mentioned that crowdfunding stuff. Do, can we get one together so we could buy either Nemesis or Unmatched online, <laughs> please? Somebody. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, it's, it's so stupidly expensive. <laughs> so anyways, that's Unmatched Digital Edition. Uh, I look forward to not playing this or, you know, maybe Steam puts it on sale for like 10 bucks at some point and then I will play it. <laughs> so. You'll play the base game, but not any of the expansions because for some reason, the expansions will still cost 75 bucks. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Ah, good times. Well, they're still good times and mostly 
They're on Patreon. Anthony, you're doing things on Patreon. What's coming up? Yes, sir. I am going through my top 100 list, and I'm actually getting towards the end of it. Um, I'm up to episode 8, which is number 30 through 21. Uh, That will be up this week, so a day or two after you're listening to this. If you are a backer on Patreon at the $5 level or higher, you can download my next top 100 deep dive episode, numbers 30 through 21. So, And you can listen to the rest of them, which are all up there as well. So I, I look forward to that. I'm having a lot of fun with this and just in time to update the top 100 for next year. So um, I'm going to have a special bonus episode when I get to the end where I talk about all the games I think are going to change, like drop in or drop out uh, based on what I played in the last two years. So yeah, it's a lot of fun. Join me on uh, Patreon and we appreciate your support on top of that. All right. So that's what's happening in the world out there. Let's talk about the games that we want to hit the table, hopefully at a price that we can afford. Mm-hmm. And Anthony, anything that you could get to the table without a normal leg and a second mortgage? Uh, well, I don't know, but we'll see. <laughs> um, so uh, speaking of GameFound, uh, our friends over at Academy Games have a new game up on GameFound. Uh, and it is a kind of a, a re-implementation of an old system. Um, this is called Fief England. Mm-hmm. So Fief is not a new game. Uh, Fief France 1429. Uh, came out back in 2015, which was based on Fief 2, which came out in 1989, which was based on Fief, which came out in 1981. So this is a system that's been around for 40 plus years and just keeps getting re-implemented in different ways. Um, This version is taking us to England, whereas the previous version was France. So you have a relatively like simple looking map of England, because England, if you're just talking about England, is not actually that big. <laughs> like, uh, there's not a lot going on there in terms of the map. Uh, but you are playing as, you know, these medieval families, and you're trying to gain titles, and there's various levels of intrigue, um, diplomacy, marriage alliances, betrayals, wars. It's like Crusader Kings as a board game, but much smaller and shorter and in a specific country. Um, I say that especially because there is a Crusaders Kings board game, which is much longer. Um, so Academy Games has done a few crowdfunding campaigns. They've had like varying levels of success, um, but they've all shipped and they've generally made some very interesting, fun games over the years. So and, and Fief was a game that did very well and, and was enjoyable to play. So this is a version that kind of takes that into England. Um, you get historical metal coins, which is very cool. Uh, if you go to the all in pledge. Um, you have kind of this historical artwork and layout. And it's like an interesting mix because you kind of have the illustrated manuscript style on the map. But then the cards themselves are like very detailed, almost Renaissance style portraits, um, which is a bit of a, a mix. I'm not really sure what's going on there, but they look nice. The artwork is very nice. Um, and it, yeah, it's just about kind of managing your house, building these diplomatic connections marriages um dealing with various events and disasters that happen and of course fighting each other because it is the middle ages uh so there is a legends expansion that they've kind of thrown in here as well so you can have characters from like old english literature like robin hood and ivanhoe um richard lionheart uh it's cool like as somebody who studied english literature and history this is a very fun theme for me and their pricing is obscenely low compared to what they say the msrp is going to be mm-hmm. right so they're saying 
The Duke's Deluxe Edition with the metal coins should be $145. You can get it for $75. I don't, I don't who knows if that's true. That's but not true. Not true. It's, you know, you look at those numbers, though, and you're like, oh, it's not too bad. Yeah. Um, so, you know, they, they got that marketing nonsense going on. They know yeah. what they're doing. Um, the full all-in with everything is 170 which is a lot, but still not as much as some other games lately. So it is what it is. Board games cost a lot. Um, but it's cool looking. Like, if you like historical board games, if you're looking for one that's, like, highly polished, Academy Games does a good job. Check this one out. It's Fief England. Yeah, I always liked Academy Games when it, when it's the historical era. They do a fantastic job. Uh, Fief was a very good game. Uh, I think it's out of print now at this point. So it's right. nice for this to be out here in the world. The coins, I mean, I, I appreciate the fact that they are going with historical medical, metal, metal coins. Although I, I still wonder what happened to us as a community where we were just like, now we're a coin collecting hobby. I know. <laughs> like, you know, it's just like, it's, it's, it's usually like the coins, like the metal coins are, you know, either they were an add on. And then they became part of the game, but on the bottom, like after the game and the gameplay. And now it's it's the second image on the campaign. Like you're getting yeah. historical metal coins. You're like, sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're not just up there. They're free. I know. Quote unquote free. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure they are. Yeah, yeah. no, I know. It's. It's it's not a terrible deal, I'll say. It's not a great deal, but it's no, not a terrible deal in the grand scheme of things on, on crowdfunding. And, you know, this is a company that does deliver in general. So, like, you could look at the price and be like, are you sure? And, like, probably. They're not they're not digging themselves a grave here. But, um, I mean, it's, it's uh, yeah, the coins are funny. I mean, if they if they charge 145 MSRP, if that's really the MSRP when it comes out. I mean, that's kind of a lot. But again, like it you is. said, as far as games are concerned these days, like, uh, you know, the gate's wide open, right? If you can charge $900 for all the Nemesis stuff, then you can certainly charge 145 Or if you could charge 235 for, you know, Food Chain Magnet. So, yeah, I, I guess it's possible. It's just, by all means and look of this game, it's a $75 game, $75 game MSRP. So for them to say yeah. it's a $75 discount you're like "Mm, i don't know plus shipping but still but then again (laughs) it's the the world we live in my friend it is i know yeah like we're just those old guys who are coming to terms with things like i guess the world's different now (laughs) i don't like it but i guess it's the way it is i'm gonna be kickstarting myself some food these days (laughs) (laughs) have you seen the price of groceries kids (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) anyhow so yeah no that's great that's coming out uh, you know, every once in a while, I, I, again, talking about being an old guy, I, I think about the old times, which was online games with RTSs, real-time strategy. Uh, you don't see a lot of real-time strategy games coming out so much anymore. Uh, StarCraft II has kind of, like, cemented its place, like Magic the Gathering, and just, like, we are the thing. And then there's other games, which are also fine, but it's really this. So I've been watching a lot of StarCraft II uh, playthroughs which are a lot of fun, a lot of highly competitive games, even though I don't play the game anymore. I still, I do have it, but again, now the, the speed and the, and the amazing abilities of all these players is just phenomenal down to the second. When you listen to like the commentary, they're like, Oh, it's two minutes and some odd seconds. They're going to do this. And they do that. You're like, wow, that's pretty, 
pretty damn impressive. So I want to play RTS games again, but there are not any RTS games that I could reasonably get into considering the fact that like everything is now to the extreme. So uh, I stumbled across some early information. I mean, it's been out for some time in some places about a new RTS that's coming out. It's not out yet, but it is somewhat kind of on Kickstarter. So that's the thing. Uh, It's called Stormgate. It's from the StarCraft II and WarCraft III developers, some of the best RTSs, arguably the best RTSs of all time. It's a new RTS, hyper-responsive gameplay, a powerful editor, co-op, campaign, 1v1, and more. So if you ever liked an RTS, it's probably going to be from some of these developers here because they come from you know, all of the old school mainstays, whether it's Warcraft, Starcraft, Red Alert, any of those other kind of Blizzard RTS type games, they've been a part of it. So they pulled together a company, uh, Frost Giant Studios, and they are currently in an alpha game situation. So if you go on YouTube and you want to type in Stormgate and you could see two of the playable uh, races that are out there. And one of these is the traditional Terran space marine kind of humans and the other one is the a kind of a mix of the i guess starcraft 2 zerg and the kind of demonic warcraft 3 characters into one and it looks like a really excellent rts game so if you are into rts games kickstar has a campaign that allows you to pick up some cosmetic upgrades some actual things for the games that you might want to play, you know, all that kind of fun stuff. Not the game itself, but all the other stuff that comes along with it. So you can get a collector's pack and, you know, you can get beta access and all that kind of fun stuff. So it does allow you to get a lot of stuff if this is your thing that you're into. The good thing about the game from what I've been hearing from the commentary tracks is if you are a new player into the RTS kind of arena, these games are for you especially this one here because it is it they're really focusing on easy to play, you know, difficult to master kind of situation. So you could still be an expert, you could still be one of these top players, but if you're a new player, uh you're not you're not uh, immediately crushed, right? A lot of the stuff is is kind of automated to the point where you could focus on other things. So uh if you're interested, Stormgate is on Kickstarter for another 45 days. And you could check out all the fun stuff with there, plus all the commentary, the videos, the the esports stuff that they're putting together. Um, just a lot of fun stuff. Again, if you're into RTS games, I've, I've been tempted, but I just I've never been good at RTS games, yeah. and they're always like a thing that I like. I get very frustrated with very quickly because I'm like, I'm bad at this. Uh, but they're like, I appreciate the puzzle of them yeah. a lot. I just don't have the dexterity for it, so I. I will watch this from a distance and pick it up later on a Steam sale, mm-hmm. but I'm glad it exists. Yeah, no, it's a lot of fun. And it, it combines a lot of the things that we love in board gaming. And obviously, I, RTSs was my main game mechanic, game style that I used to love to play because it's about building an economy. And then that economy is what allows your war machine to actually do a thing. So. Right. Um, it's not just like a first person shooter where it's just that one soldier. It's really about does does that economy sing? Is it 
it has a civilization element to it without being a big civilization game. And it's colorful and it's fun. And it's got a lot of the sci-fi and the fantasy themes kind of rolled into one, which is always fun and generally good competition across the board. So, all right. Well, those are the games that we want to hit the table, the tablet and online. Anthony, let's talk about the games that did hit the table this week, letting people know if those games are a buy and they should run out, pick those games up. If those games are a play and they should sit down and play them. If those games are a dodge and they should avoid them. Or if those games are dreaded burn, they should just delete them. What'd you play this week, Anthony? All right. I played a game that my son was super psyched about at PAX. Um, I had to go back and pick it up, though, because by the time I got him home on Saturday, they had still not cleared out the line from the Lorcana crazies. Oh um, this is a Ravensburger game. And so I went back and picked it up at the very end of the day on Sunday, because, of course, they had copies of this. It's Horrified Greek Monsters. So Horrified came out, uh, I want to say, four years ago, five years ago. And it was about kind of saving the townsfolk in this small town from the universal monsters. So you had uh, like Dracula and um, Boris, you know, Carlyle's uh, or Karloff's Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein and the Mummy and the uh, Creature from the Black Lagoon. And each of them had their own rules that you'd have to take care of. It's a cooperative game. Mm-hmm. So it's it was fantastic. Like if you like the old universal monster movies, it's like a really good implementation of that. Um, it was one of the first games where I was like, oh, is Prospero Hall like amazing? Like, I guess so. Um, and so they've re-implemented it now twice. The first was American Monsters, um, which is like, you know, Bigfoot and things like that. Uh, and now we have Greek Monsters, which is dipping into Greek mythology. Um, and my son's really into Greek mythology right now because they're reading about it in social studies at school. Uh, and he's like, these are great. So in this game, you play as an avatar of the Greek gods. And you are trying to get rid of the monsters that have escaped from Pandora's box. Uh, the function of the game is fairly simple, right? So each person has a little character on the board. On your turn, you have four-ish actions. Um, some of the characters have a little bit more, but generally about four. And some kind of special power in there, right? So uh, each of them is a little asymmetrical, but not a lot asymmetrical. So some of them get special cards that give you bonuses if certain things happen. Other ones can kind of warp around the map a little bit, um, depending on certain criteria. And on your turn, you're trying to move or protect these various legends. So like Jason and, um, uh, you know, Perseus and, and these various characters from Greek myths that you would know. You are not one of those characters. You're just like random Joe Schmo. But you're trying to protect the ones that you do know. And you're also trying to defeat the monsters. So there are six monsters that you could play against. Medusa, Cerberus, Chimera, Minotaur, um, Harpy, and Basilisk. And each of these has its own criteria on how you have to beat them. Just like the original game. Um, so like four of these, for example, have layers that you have to uncover. These layer tokens go on the board face down. You have to kind of move around and find them. And then you have to do something in those layers to defeat them. Um, the main mechanic of the game is you're going around these different locations and picking up item tokens. And then those item tokens are then spent in a number of ways. You can spend them to defend yourself. You can spend them to attack the monsters. You can defend them to open up the layers. It depends on the game and what combination of stuff you have. Um, but the thing that I really like about Horrified is that it lets you kind of set your difficulty relatively easily, right? So you could play against four monsters, and that's pretty hard. That's hard mode. Or you can play against just two of them and the game will tell you 
these two are the easiest, right? So when I first played with my son, and this is really important, especially when playing with kids, you don't want to lose badly on the first game of a co-op if it's a family co-op, right? If it's an adult co-op, like if you're playing Spirited Island, then sure, get annihilated the first game, then you know the game's legit. But if you're playing like a family-oriented game, like Horrified or really any Robinsburg, Prospero Hall type of game, you should win or get close to winning on that first play, right? So Horrified does a good job of that, of saying like, okay, when you play the first round, play the Cerberus and the Basilisk, just the two. Here's the layout. Here's some character recommendations. Go. And we went and we won, but close. It was close. Like the game seems really well balanced in that way. Um, it plays relatively quickly. It's it's a smooth experience. It takes about an hour. Um, and that's with teaching him how to play and obviously working through a co-op with a 12-year-old. And it has a lot of really cool like references to Greek myths and, and various locations. Um, the artwork is amazing, as usual, for a Ravensburger game. And just the production quality is really solid. This is also a game you can just pick up at like Target or Walmart, so you don't have to go hunt it down. Um, like We got it at PAX because he wanted to play it, but I've seen it at Target since. So if you like Horrified, if you've played Horrified or have it, this is not like crazy different from that. It's using the core formula. It's it's almost like a standalone expansion, like a different version of Pandemic would be. Like if you like Pandemic, you could play Pandemic with World of Warcraft or Star Wars. It's, it's kind of like that. Um, but if you like Greek monster stuff or Greek mythology, then this is really cool. And if you've never played Horrified, maybe because you didn't like the, you know, the horror monster theme then this is even cooler i think it's the best version of the game so far um i can't 100 percent peg why it just feels a little more balanced i didn't have like the kind of the wild swings that i felt and each of the monsters has been interesting to fight um whereas there were a couple duds in the original and in the american monsters which i haven't played fully but the the couple times i've kind of run through it is like this is it's just not as interesting um so maybe it's a theme because I also really like the Greek mythology, uh, but it, it works really well. So if you like the theme, if you're looking for a good family co-op, Horrified Greek Monster is fantastic. Um, I gave the original a buy. I give this one a buy as well. Uh, well worth picking up, and I'm glad I finally circled around and the lore kind of had sold out enough that I could pick this up. Yeah, that's great that they back-to-back <laughs> wins with this game, especially since it does seem like such a throwaway game where they're just like, oh, we have the monsters. You're like, oh, it's it's one of those games. It's just going <laughs> to be one of those games. You're just like, ah. So it actually plays well, and that's great. And it plays with, and, and saying the difficulty is really a lot of fun that you can do that. Yeah, right. Like after we after we won the first game, my son was like, "We should go to four. I'm like, "We're gonna lose. We go to four. What are you talking about?" He's like, "No, it'll be fine." I'm like, "Let's go to three, maybe, or or maybe two harder ones." Yeah. Um, but it scales really well, and I I remember playing the original one like with my game group like over Halloween, and we all had a lot of fun too. It's not strictly a family game. Like, it's a solid cooperative experience. It's not a heavy one, mm-hmm. but. It does it all very well. It's very well polished. It, it reminds me of Villainous, where you look at it and you're like, oh, that's probably a throwaway, and you play it, and you're like, no, that's a solid core game. That's great. No, I love it. And again, like the Greek monster, I, I love the idea of these different pantheon of monsters and these urban mm-hmm. legends and myths. So that's great. Fantastic. Uh, well, again, going back to the online platform stuff that I was seeking to play something this week, 
I got a chance to play Hexarchy. This is a new game on Steam. Came out a couple of months ago, back in uh, late, late October. And it is a civilization building game that is kind of restrained by a deck building element. So we, as board gamers who played Civ games, ha ha ha, are, are pretty familiar with this kind of game type. So think Civilization the board, Civilization the game, right? The online Civ 4, Civ 5, 6, and all that other kind of stuff. But shrink it down much, much more. And then shackle it a little bit with a deck building element. So again, like all these kind of deck building, and I don't know if it's as deck building as much as it is, you have a deck. And when you start with this deck of cards, some of those cards will allow you to do different things for your civilization. Like obviously start first start by establishing a civilization based on your um, area. Pick the right, you know, hex that you want to start building from, obviously where there's other resources nearby. And then you'll have cards that will have immediate effects like you know, wood or mining and such and so forth and so on. But then there are other cards that are basically their own little tech trees. So you'll play a, a card in technology, mathematics or tactics, and then it'll split off to three or four cards. And now you have to choose from one of those cards to add to your hand. And those other options kind of disappear. So you get to decide what type of gameplay you're interested for that particular civilization is based upon this larger tech tree that you could take a look at, but inevitably comes down to what cards you take, how they split, what cards you take from that split, and then how that particularly leads your civilization down a certain path. So the game has all of the standards. You're building up your population. You're trying to keep them happy because unhappy people lead to problems across the civilization. And then you are building up food. You're building up minerals and resources so that you can build structures and armies and such. There are luxury goods. Luxuries of goods are good to help your civilization stay happy. And then you're also able to use other, other settlers to build other cities in your particular, like you could be the Greeks or you could be the Chinese or the Persians, right? So it has all the names of the different cities, states that you could build. And those cities, states built up as well. And then of course, beyond all of the buildings that you could build, then there's military. So you get to build up a number of different types of military units. Again, at the start, they're very primitive. So you might have just general, you know, grunts to swords people, to archers, to cavalry, to catapults. And then obviously through the civilizations, you get guns and other stuff as the civilization matures. Again, always going back to those cards that kind of limit. Once you have those soldiers out there, you could attack other civilizations out there you can burn down their their cities you could steal resources you can capture particular lands you could fight with other players when you fight with other players it's pretty straightforward you're going to do the damage that the characters stated they'll do the damage back that their characters stated and then there's obviously some defensive bonuses and some other stuff that you'll be able to add to the particular troops throughout the game so more cards allow you to do more upgrades to your soldiers and your buildings and your towns and things like that Beyond that, there's wonders because, of course, civilizations need wonders and wonders do a lot of different things for your civilization to make them happy, to add food, to allow you to expand. I think the most fun part of the game for me is I've done really well economically with my particular cities and they expand the hexes that they control. And as they expand their 
invisible colored control areas, uh, I gain more resources. So it's nice to see my civilization build out. The military actions are rather simple. You do, of course, have to travel the hexes to get to the enemies or get to the enemy cities. Uh, they are sending troops to attack you as well. Uh, military is not a super big part of it, but you can make it the main thrust of your particular civilization as you could just, as most Civ builders understand, like you build tall or you build wide. So you could just build this massive one city state and then just send your troops out. or you could do the opposite. You could build a lot of little small cities and kind of capture lands and do more economic kind of stuff. It's a rather fun game. I, I enjoyed it. There is a demo up. It plays with Macs or PCs. Uh, the full game allows you to play with the different civilizations and their special bonuses that come into play. There's weekly challenges that you have to do certain things in order to win. And it's just a general fun game. So Hex Archie is currently on steam for i think it's about twenty dollars twenty dollars online currently not 75 not 75 and you get everything with the twenty dollars yeah so a complete game <laughs> yes <that> you can play <laughs> for many hours <laughs> and it's not 75 dollars. nor is it 900 dollars. <laughs> i don't understand this economy man i don't get it <laughs> get it while you can before they realize what they're doing <laughs> I know. We're going to log in tomorrow. I'm going to go check this out tomorrow. I'm like, no, it's $75 now. You guys said it was $75. Yeah. I mean, look, there is a time and place for the big Civ games. And there's a time where you just want to play a Civ game in an hour. This is the one that plays in an hour. And I like that. And I and I like the, I like the, uh, I wouldn't really call it deck building. They call it deck building. I, I like the card play. I think it slims things down as far as choices you can take. And I like the tightness of that puzzle. and the. Graphic design is very good. You're burning cards because you're getting them out of your deck. So, um, yeah, fun game. Cool. Yeah. All right. So that's everything that's hitting our table, tablet, and online. Anthony, it is now time for our feature review. Our feature review this week, of course, is one of the features that we knew was going to happen one day. And it did. It happened today. <laughs> where we have to admit <laughs> the games that we like way too much and nobody else likes so much. Yeah, yeah, it's it's always fun though, because <laughs> is it is it really? No, it's if you like a game, it's good, right? Like, I think too often we end up yelling at each other, and be like, "That game's bad. Why do you like it?" And like, who cares? Oh, like, no! If you like a game, you like a game. There's nothing wrong with it. I don't um, know. We'll see. So we're we'll see. we're advocating for all of you out there who who like games that maybe your friends we do absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many great games that we were talking about this before. We were looking at the games. And our ratings and scales and things online, you might love a game because of the theme. And that's a hundred percent legitimate. Or you might love a game because of the mechanics, even though the theme is not the best in the world. Also a hundred percent legitimate. I mean, all of these things are legitimate. So yeah, like the games that you like and tell people so more people will play them. Or Get a podcast and you could tell people to everywhere. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, you get, if you have the uh the pulpit up here you can say whatever you want yes people have to listen to you or if you pay 900 dollars for a game or 75 dollars for an online <laughs> game you could do that too that's true all right anthony so what's what's your first game here all right so my first game is one that i was super excited about um this was a re-implementation of robinson crusoe that had been announced back in 2016 and Ignacy Trevichek's like it's going to be amazing it's got you're going to be on mars you're going to be exploring you got to survive um, and so when first Martians Adventures on the Red Planet came out, there was a lot of hype. I, I, I 
I think I streamed a playthrough with Jason over the internet. Mm-hmm. Like that's how hyped it was because we've never done that since. Well, um, well to be fair, Robinson Crusoe is a very good game. It is. And it is an amazing game. And Mars is a very good planet. Yes, Mars <laughs> is fun. So this came out uh, in kind of the glut of Martian games. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> to be kind, everybody was a little down on it, um, including us. I don't think we were super hot on the game, although we certainly weren't as down on the game as a lot of people were. People were savaging this thing well, in the reviews. I-, I think there's a couple of things, right? I think you're you're certainly on point. And I think you previewed this, or I, I think you might have previewed this, but I was hot for this game too, because again, right. Robinson Crusoe, awesome. Mars also are awesome. So this game should be awesome. And go. Yeah. So the same thing that happens to all of Portal Games' games happened. Yes. And that the rules were terrible. Horrible. You couldn't you could not learn the game from the rule book. There was too many things not actually in the rule book, explicitly said. Combined with the fact that it's an app-based game. So you needed to run through the app to be able to do many of the things. And the app, combined with the rule book, made the game very difficult to play so that was a problem that many people did not get over so you played it once or twice it was a terrible experience like wow this is a terrible game the game itself is not actually bad in fact if you play through the campaign that comes in the box which very few people did and i almost didn't either except jason like convinced me to do it after we played he's like no no the campaign is the only way to play this game it's actually a very interesting, engaging, fun story to the point where if you look at BGG, it's best at one. <laughs> it's a one to four player game. People say it's best at one by a lot. Okay. So it's it's one of those experiences. I'm not going to go back and play it probably ever again. But having played through all of it, it almost feels like a legacy experience where I'm like, I'm really glad I did. I had a lot of fun. I really wish other people could have experienced this in the same way but there were so many barriers to it. And it was such a flop that I don't think they ever got around to fixing all that. Now there's videos that'll help you learn how to play. I think the app still works, um, but it it was disappointing. And then I spent the next like several years being like, no, no, First Martians is actually pretty good. And people are like, ha ha ha, it's terrible. <laughs> like, no, no, the game is not terrible. The rules are terrible. <laughs> so um, I think they've gotten better. The last couple portal games I've played, I could understand the rules. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, but this one, like, and you'd think they'd figure it out because Robinson Crusoe also famously had terrible rules, and then the the reimplementation of Robinson Crusoe also, also terrible rules, and then First Martians also terrible rules. So, I don't know what the problem was, but um, fast forward six years and nobody's talking about this game. But I will say, if you find a copy and you like playing stuff by yourself, pretty good. Check it out. I I got this game at at some point somewhere. I don't remember what it was. It was one of those kind of like people are selling board games, you know. And I picked this up because it's it was pretty much all together. It basically they must have opened the box and looked at the rules and then put it back and put it up for sale. And then I bought mm-hmm. the game. I opened the box. I looked at the rules. And I put it up for sale. <laughs> and again, as you said. Probably not a bad game, but the rule book was so bad. And the iconography, I think, was hard to get through. Yeah. And I think also, if I I don't remember this correctly, maybe help me with this a little bit. Was this it wasn't crowdfunded, but it was on you had to buy it through their website to get like a 
special thing or some extra thing. So people were backing this without people playing it. Yeah. But, and on top of that, they had like a whole thing where like, because they ran the pre-orders through PayPal, yeah, the game, like PayPal took all the money. Yeah. And so they were like, no, no, we're, we promise we'll figure out a way to ship it. And you're like, are you broke? <laughs> yeah. Has this game broken you? Like this game almost broke that company. And I'm glad it didn't because Trevichek's, you know, he's, he's a good designer. He's a good guy. And they make a lot of good games, but it, it almost broke them in many ways. Yeah, I think this was certainly the game that crippled them at the very least. And it has been one of the games that has cautioned me from backing their other games, you know, mm-hmm. after that, just because it was such there were so many problems with the game that what that had nothing to do with the game itself. And like right. you said, that has certainly spoiled it for a lot of people out there because I've never played this. And again, like I said, like Robinson Crusoe, like Mars, and I will never play this. And again, it was app-based as well, which is always a problem because those apps are always underfunded. Yeah, the app was a bit of a mess. It eventually got fine, but it was a bit of a mess. Yeah. So it's it's a lot. It's he was trying to do a lot with that game. And I appreciate that. It it just didn't come together in that time. Right. And I think a lot of the game a lot of the portal games, like you said, problematic rule books, but also they tend to be obtuse and clunky. Yeah. So Right. But there's a good game in there. It's just it needed some time for refinement across the board and it just did not get it. So. All right. Well, a game that I happen to love a lot and <laughs> maybe because I'm a, uh, I'm a New Yorker Italian, but uh, New York Slice came out in 2017. Uh, you're building your ultimate pizza. The idea is to slice it well or end up stuck with the anchovies. Uh, this is a game from. Uh, Bezier Games, it's been around for a while. It's It's been out there. People have played it. There wasn't some um, um, enormous hate for the game, but it certainly has been passed up time and time again and has not gotten the love that it needs. It's, you know, floating around to six something, six point something on board Game Geek. And I really enjoy the game for a couple of reasons. It's 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 elegant. It's simple. It's straightforward. Um, it's a set collection game where the game itself is a pizza pie with all of these slices and the different slices have a number of different toppings on them and you're trying to get similar type toppings. And then there's also special conditions and special bonuses and awards and things like that. But it really comes down to the game mechanic that's so rarely used these days, which is I cut, you choose. And I think out of all the mechanics out there in board gaming, that's one of the most dynamic ones because so much comes into play when I cut, you know, like if I have all of these valuable pieces or resources and I have to decide what I need, but also think about what you might need, but also have to decide if what I'm splitting is maybe so good on one end, which I really want the good stuff, but Maybe if I make it too good, if I if I if I'm a little too greedy, you might take the thing that I want, even though you may not want it. It's like that back and forth psychological play, and it's a lot of fun. It's it's a quick and simple game, and it's something that you could play with family and friends. It's pretty straightforward. It's a really fun game. Uh, certainly should be rated higher, uh, and maybe it's the anchovies on the game that people are not playing or backing it. Uh, but if you have a chance, you get should really get to play New York Slice. That's the problem, man. You can't put anchovies on there. I know, I'm, so good. I'm not a fan of anchovies at all. So you're not, 
you're speaking, you're, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> um, all right. Next one up for me is actually the first board game I bought uh-huh. outside of the game store. Oh, wow. Like hobby game. This is one like I heard about it. I went and bought it off the website back in 2013. Uh, Boss Monster, the dungeon building card game. And I remember I brought this to Myriad. We played it mm-hmm. several times. I made my wife play it with me several times. I don't even make her play games with me anymore. So this was like, <laughs> like <laughs> early, early on. And in it, it's like an 8-bit game where you are building out this dungeon and trying to defeat these heroes that are trying to take out the boss, right? Um, it's very simple, very family weight. It's cute. It's fun. It has a lot of jokes and references to old style, like 8-bit video games. Um, they had expansions that would come in boxes that look like Game Boy games, uh, all sorts of cool stuff that came out with it. At the end of the day, though, it's a fairly simple formula. There's not a lot going on here. And like the combination of relative simplicity and take that elements make the game. I've certainly played it with people who are like, what is this and why are we doing this? <laughs> like, um, More often than not. And I still love it. It's I still have it downstairs. I sleeved. This is the first game I sleeved. To the point, like, the box wasn't that big. I sleeved it, and then the cards don't fit in the box. Um, I bought all the expansions. I bought the terrible, back to the terrible Kickstarter with the digital implementation that just never arrived, um, eventually arrived, wasn't very good, just to get the extra cards that came with that. Um, there was a 10th anniversary edition uh, that was recently announced, and I'm all over that as well. So it's just, it's a combination of nostalgia for the game itself, because it was like early in my board gaming career or hobby, um, and nostalgia for the things that it is sending up and representing. So I, I recognize that the game's not amazing. It's not terrible, right? It's it's a solid, like, okay. <laughs> is that a rating? It's a solid, yeah, like, um, it's like a 6.2, I think, on Board Game Geek. Yeah. But my experience has generally been like, I'll be like, this is great. This is fun. This is light and easy. And people will be like, this is not anything. <laughs> like, what are we doing? Yeah. I'm like, no, but it's cool. It's fun. I love it. Um, look at all the jokes. Look, that 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 cover there looks like a, a Nintendo game. And they're like, I, I don't care. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have this nostalgia that you seem to have for the 80s uh, and, and video games. So I'm like, all right, fine. Um, so it's very much a me thing. But it's not just me. There's many people who also feel this way. So uh, Boss Monster Dungeon Building Card Game, it has a very warm spot in my heart. I will hold on to it forever, even though at this point, I don't know who will play with me. <laughs> so. Yeah, I I backed the original version of this. I even might have backed the second. I mean, I got the expansion, at least the first expansion. And then right. it went all over the place. And I was like, cool, I'm out. Uh, and I have the video game version, too, which I think was the Kickstarter. I think there was a Kickstarter with the expansion or something like that. But yes, you did get certain looks at the table when bringing this there because as as wonderful as 8-bit, as wonderful as like Minecraft has made 8-bit gaming like a thing again, or at least the look of it as a thing, uh, game tables don't really love 8-bit games at the table. <laughs> so no. uh, yeah, you get a lot of funny looks bringing an 8-bit to the table. They're like, really? Really? Is this a thing? Aw. And just like, it's kind of a game. <laughs> we should play it. They're like, ugh. So, yeah, I remember that there was a lot of a lot of cross-eyed looks there. 
Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, hold on to that one because I have one later that's just like that. So I want to talk about a game that, you know, from Steve Jackson Games, again, getting a lot of maybe not the most love. Uh, Revolution with an exclamation point. This game has hit my top 100 many times over the years. And it is an area control game that uses blind bidding. And I think historically, um, and, and I think you remember this way back in the day at Myriad, like we had copies of this game as far as for our charity and people were balking like they did not want. I know. It was terrible. Which is crazy because the artwork is good. The gameplay is good. The components are good. Again, back in the day, this fit really well. This is Philip DuBerry. And it's just a solid game of trying to outthink your opponents who might be jockeying for certain positions in the different areas of power on the, the main board. So basically, you have your own little screen. Behind the screen is a board that allows you to put, I think it was money, which is influence, blackmail, or just like force. Like you were going to threaten somebody. That blind bidding thing, I think, was very harsh to certain people because if you didn't get it right, you lost all your tokens and you kind of get set back to zero. But it's a great fun game. Area control games are a dime a dozen out there. But here you have blind bidding that goes along with it, which would be the way that an area control game would go because you have to make a decision on how how much force or resources you're going to put into a certain area in order to control an area. That's a lot of fun. Expansions made it better, of course, but revolution, exclamation point. <laughs> Great game. Yeah, this is, <clears throat> this is a funny game because I don't own this anymore, and I actually forgot about it when we were making this list, yeah. but I love this game. It was the first hobby board game I ever played yeah. because I came to the game night, and this is where I met you and Drew, and we played this game. <laughs> so, yes. Um, which is a weird game to play with people when you'd first meet them, yes. I now know, in retrospect. <laughs> Like it's like oh I guess we have to be friends now because we didn't kill each That's other. That's right. Sounds great. We threatened each other physically. We threatened each other with blackmail, and we try to buy each other off. But now we're friends because that didn't destroy our friendship. So there you go. Yeah, it was this in flux. Oh my god! Like, and, I was, and yet I came back the next week. So uh, who knows? Sorry about that. <laughs> uh, you guys were cool, I guess. Look at the new guy um, coming back after those things. I know, yeah. And then that next week, I was like playing like Ticket to Ride and Seven Wonders. I'm like, oh, these games are actually great, cool. <laughs> well, you have the hazing the first week. That's that's what happens, right? Yeah, yeah. the flux hazing, the flux hazing. What are the, all right? Uh, next, I'm just gonna say, what are the rules of flux? You'll see, you'll see, you'll get there. Freaking <laughs> <laughs> hate. I was cleaning out my stuff, and I have a copy of Monty Python Flux. Oh yeah, and. The game is terrible. It's it's not fun to play, but I keep holding on to that because it was like the second game. I like I bought a copy of Catan and I bought that like after the first week at Myriad. Yeah. And I love Monty Python. So it's just like, I'm going to hold on to this and I keep holding on to it. I'm like, why am I, who am I going to play that? Who would I subject this to this game? Like, I'm like maybe waiting for my kids to be teenagers. I'm like, ha ha, let's, I'm going to make you get up and like recite lines from this movie. I don't know what I'm doing. That's good parenting right there. Yeah, it is. I'm awesome. Um, all right. Next up for me, and this is also on your list, I think. So we'll we'll knock them out in one go. Uh-huh. Is Dungeon. What? 19- 1975's Dungeon exclamation point. Is that with the exclamation point, right? With the exclamation Oof, point, yes. That's good. I had it in there. <laughs> um this is a game from David Magari. Um going back again, 1975. 
Um, for TSR, so this is like back in the days when Dungeons and Dragons was new. Possibly this is earlier than Dungeons and Dragons, I believe. Um, and so it's it's kind of got some cross DNA of like what came first or when it was being developed. But this is a thing you could buy and play before we even had role playing games in mass. So that's how old it is. Mm. Um, there's been many, many editions of the game. It's come out several times over the years. I think the most recent edition of the game was like five or ten years ago. It has like some upgraded kind of cartoony artwork. Um, not a huge fan of it, mm-hmm. uh, but I do have the game. This is the copy I could afford, so it's in the basement. Um, and it's it's a great experience. It's you have this big sprawling map. Um, it's like a catacombs type of thing and it's all color coded in different locations and you're moving your little guy around and each of the characters has like different abilities and powers based on like the class you're trying to pick up different treasure um each of the levels is a different difficulty so as you move through it things become a little bit harder um you have dice simulating combat like it has a lot of things that are recognizable from games today in their infancy which i understand why some people would play this and be like this isn't actually very much fun yeah but it is a, it is the adventure dungeon crawling game that we're all familiar with. But two things: one, it's only a half an hour to an hour long. It's very quick. Two, it has all like kind of the tropes that you know from D anD D. So it's it's very recognizable to people who don't play these types of games. It's not obtuse. It doesn't take a long time to teach. It's very simple. And three, it's just like kind of silly fun. You can kind of have a conversation. You can play around. You can like grab all these different spells and level up if you're the wizard. Um, I really enjoy this, despite the fact that I recognize that almost every single thing this game does has been done better by another game. But in its complete package, it's it's still a lot of fun. So I would not mind if they made an updated version of this game that kind of modernized a few things. And I say a few because I don't want them to modernize so much that it's unrecognizable. But you can pick this up for like 25 bucks from Wizards of the Coast. They still print it. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend doing so. It's a classic in my house. My kids like it. Um, yeah, dungeon exclamation point. Yeah, it's weird because this game was such a classic game, and then there was a large gap of time where it either wasn't being reprinted or just fell into the back because a lot of other hard miniatures kind of came out that were just updates of dungeon. And then they came out with a reprint with very cartoony artwork. And I was like, no, I don't like that artwork. Like the classic artwork fits the game. And if you ever played the game, you get to play a legitimate kind of dungeon crawl with those kind of fancy characters that you grew up with. And I think everyone should really, I think this game should be a gateway game. I think it should be counted in the gateway game category because I don't know a better entry-level game to dungeon crawls than this. Yeah. And it plays up to eight. That's amazing. Which is crazy. For like 40 minutes. It's fun. And people people turn their nose down on it. You bring it to game night, and they're like, what are you bringing this relic for? I'm like, we got a large group. We can actually play a game together. And we don't have to take 40 minutes to set the game up with miniatures and everything else. Mm-hmm. It just plays. So. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, speaking of a game that people don't, for some reason, want to see at the game table because it seems to be a little more cartoony and light than people are enjoying or interested in, uh, this is Streets, 
Uh, this is the middle child of Sinister Fish Games. You might remember Villagers, which everyone loves, and you might like No Moon, which came out recently and people are still getting a groove for a little bit on the he- heavier side. And then Streets was that odd middle child that was, it had the same kind of aesthetics of villagers as far as like, it, you know, those people and, and the kind of colorful, co- I wouldn't say comic, but colorful kind of style to it and the graphic design. But it was certainly similar and certainly pu- more puzzly. And every time I brought this to game night, nobody wanted to play it. There was a hard pushback against this game. Villagers became like the mainstay, and I get it because it is, but Streets is a lot of fun, and it it really plays well whether you're playing, you know, whether it's a solo or two-player game, or but it really plays best at three or four players, and it's kind of a shame that people have not embraced this game because it really enjoys better gameplay at the higher player count, and it's a lot of fun. So streets, streets ahead, man. Totally streets ahead. Streets ahead. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> yeah, this is a great game. I, I don't get why this is like the the down game of the trilogy. I think they're all very, very good. Um, I, I think just when you have two amazing games and one of them's considered less than that, people are like, eh, it's the bad one. But none of them are the bad one. They're all good. It's true. Uh, all right. Next up for me is a relatively recent game. In fact, we only reviewed this like 10 or 11 months ago. Um, and that's Marvel Damage Control. So this is from WizKids and uh, designed by Omari Akil, um, who had previously designed Rap Gods, which is another like underappreciated game, although it's I wouldn't say it's a bad game. It has a relatively recent rating and people do generally like it. It's just hard to find. Um, but this one is a 30-minute deck building game with a unique deck building mechanic where you have like this pile of rubble that you're drawing from. And as you flip those cards over, it triggers various events, which cause to put out more rubble or you to discard cards or pass them to each other. And so you're trying to very efficiently build a deck in like four or five turns and then kind of get these heroes to kind of help you because you are in Marvel damage control. You are not the hero. You are cleaning up the mess of the heroes, but the heroes can come in and help occasionally and be as efficient as possible. So it's not a big, long deck building game that where you can build a deck and run a combo. You're not doing that. And so I think because you're not doing that, some people play this and they have a different expectation than what the game is. They're like, why am I not getting to like power off all my special abilities? I'm like, because that's not what the game is. (laughs) Um, So uh, like the mechanics are a bit of a misnomer. The general organization of the game is a bit of a misnomer. But for what it is and the way you kind of quickly power through all these interesting Marvel mechanics and doing something in that Marvel universe. It's kind of outside the usual like heroes punching each other. Um, I think it does it all really interestingly and really fun. So Marvel damage control is a game that when we reviewed it last year, it was like, this is surprisingly good. Mm-hmm. And then when it finally released, everybody's like, no, we hate it. And I'm like, Oh, <laughs> I thought it was good. Yeah. Um, so I still think it's good and I will maintain that. All right. No, I, 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 when we were at our charity event, one of the games that was up for the auction was that game. And I recommended that to Chris and Aaron for board games for the better, because I think it plays really well with families and it as gamers and you and I and Jen played this and we kept expecting it to be longer and heavier and crunchier. 
And even though we knew it was going to be light, we just expected more complexity and more length. And once we kind of reestablish our expectations of what we thought the game should be as a game itself, it's great. Now, that being said, when you take a, a deck of cards and you just do this weird kind of mix mash on, on the table, people are going to look at you funny. And that's what yep. happens because <laughs> it looks, yep. it certainly looks like, and I think if I remember correctly, you and I back, I think this was at PAX when this came out, we just right. passed right over this to play, I think, a- Marvel Age of Legends or whatever the X-Men version of that is. Right, right, right. And we're yeah. like, oh, that's also a game. That's great. It's probably for five-year-olds. We're going to move beyond it. Because <laughs> I remember that was the, the that was the vibe that was coming off of it. Like, this was a kid's game. So Yeah, I totally. I could totally see that. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I, I won't say my kids don't like it, but it's, yeah, sure. um, I have fun with it. Like, it is, though, it's, it's getting past your expectations of what it's supposed to be. Because it is not meant to be a full no. hour, hour and a half long deck building game. It's quick. It's almost like a dueling game. And, uh. It works in that way. Absolutely. Well, a game that I have championed for a long time, a game that's sat at the top, well, relative to, I mean, again, depending on what you consider a top, has sat within the one the, my top 100 for several years, is a social deduction game. Now, if you know what? me, see, he knew that. I'm not a social <laughs> deduction guy. I don't like playing social deduction games. I just don't. Because most social deduction games comes down to either like, how much can you lie or how much do your friends like you and they don't want to kick you out of the game? I mean, that's really what, what it comes down to werewolf. So uh, when someone <laughs> said, Hey, you want to play a social deduction game? I said, no. And I started moving myself out of there until I saw the unique and interesting artwork of shadow hunters. that came out in 2005 and I was like, Oh, cool. I am intrigued. This is really, it, it has that, it's a horror kind of theme because there are shadows. These are the monstrous creatures of the night and there are shadow hunters, right? So very felt very kind of like pulp novel. I, I don't know, monster kind of a uh, monster of the week kind of thing. And yet the gameplay itself is intriguing because you really do have to invest in that kind of deduction because it's no one's going to be like eliminated because they are looking funny or their their heads are turned to the side or because they played a an odd card here or there. There are two teams, the bad guys and the good guys, and nobody knows who each other is. And that's a kind of its own game. But then there comes these neutral characters, and a lot of these neutral characters are also oddities, and some of them want to die. And some of them need to kill either the good guys or the bad guys. So, and they all have special abilities and they all have uh, different health uh, tracks. So some of them have more health, some have less health. And because of that interplay between the three different groups and because of the unique special powers of those particular groups when they're exposed and what they can do, plus the powers and the weapons that they could pick up and add and how they figure out who each other is is also very unique. And sometimes, to be honest, it comes down to shooting everybody <laughs> and seeing who survives. Uh, it, it's just been a very fun game. Now, this copy, this version is out of print. 
And recently it came, the game itself, at least in a new version, came back into print as Fangs from Cosmo. Now, here's two things I love about Cosmo. Cosmo does a great job with their games and they make them relatively inexpensive. The cover art on Fangs is like is like the the worst slash fiction of Twilight you've ever seen. It's it's so yeah, bad. It's it's not even a it's it's just it's it's terrible. The game itself is not as good as the original game. The artwork, the board, everything that comes along with it. Uh, if you could find the original copy, I think you might get people to the table. The new version is not going to get anyone to the table, but it's actually a very good game. Uh, so. Uh, rest in peace, Shadowhunters. If you can find it, let me know because even I still don't have a copy, and it's a great game. Well worth tracking down. Yeah. I love this game, and we played it a lot. We did. I, I, like it was just like generally agreed upon. This is a good game. It plays up to eight. Yeah, it's a good social deduction, but it has some strategy to mm-hmm. it. It's fun. It's fun, and the characters are very different, and I like that too. Yep. Yep. All right. Uh, next one up for me is one, and my my last two actually are kind of classics. Uh is a game that I played a bunch when I was a kid and thought, hey, why don't I like this more? And then I had children and I played it a bunch and I was like, oh, this is why I didn't like it more because I didn't have the right situation in which to play it. And that's Uno. Um, Uno is one of those games, if you go to Board Game Geek, and some, some classic games on Board Game Geek have terrible ratings. Some have decent ratings. It depends on what less on what the quality of the game is and more just like the consensus, <laughs> like what's the discourse around it. Um, and so Uno is, you know, it's a 50 year old game. It's been around forever and it's very simple. Like, I don't need to tell you the rules to Uno. Everybody knows Uno, but it's one of those games that plays perfectly with children. Right. And you might be thinking like, isn't it kind of mean? It is mean, <laughs> but you don't really control when you're being mean. And that's what makes it so great. Right. You're not choosing to attack somebody. You're like, I have no colors. I have to play this draw four. Sorry. <laughs> like, um, There's a little bit of strategy in there, but not much. So it's a kind of the game you can play around. You can be silly. The kids can get distracted. They can be goofy. They can jump around. They can do whatever. You can retheme it in a hundred different ways. You know, we have Pokemon Uno. We have Harry Potter Uno. We have Zelda Uno. We have all these different kinds of Uno. And they all have like my little tweaks to the rules. But at the end of the day, it's just like, play a card that matches the color or (laughs) number of the card that's currently on the pile. Um, There are a bunch of different variations on this. There's like Uno's All Wild, there's Dose, there's, you know, Uno Dice Game. It's all the same stuff. And it, something happened in my brain, (laughs) like when the kids got older, I'm like, huh, I think this game's actually a lot of fun and I don't mind playing it compared to some other games that they want to play because it's quick, it's accessible as mad as a kid might get when they get beaten out of a win, the game's over in 10 minutes, and then we just start up another one. So Uno is a game that's, I think, well worth a reevaluation. It's also one of like only three games that when I bring games to the classroom with my students who are 18 years old, that everybody knows how to play. Like, people know Monopoly, which I'm not bringing in, <laughs> and they know Uno, and they know chess, and... This is like the only one that legitimately works at that larger player count. Um, people like it. So Uno is great. It's universal. Like my mother-in-law plays it with the kids. It's one of the few games she'll play with them as well. Uh, it's it's underappreciated, I think, for what it is. Sure. I don't know if any people, I, 
Yeah, I, I think it's it's underappreciated. I don't know why it doesn't get the attention. We all play it, but nobody talks right. about it. Like it doesn't get any on any lists, right? It's always like, oh, Monopoly this or Scrabble this, but Uno doesn't. Uno kind of fades to the background, weirdly enough. It's weird, yeah, because it is like it's so ubiquitous. Yeah. Everybody knows how to play Uno. Everybody knows how to play. Mm-hmm. No one has to be taught. So well. What? Do they not play it right? I don't know. According to Uno, no, well, no. no one's playing it right, but we don't care. <laughs> no, it's like Monopoly. Everybody plays like where you can like double up on the draw twos. I'm like, you can't do that. Yeah. That's super mean. <laughs> don't do that. Yeah, the free parking gets $500. Yeah, there's a whole bunch yeah, of yeah. Stuff, fun stuff. Uh, going back to the theme of games that I love and want to champion because they're their best for the publisher, but are kind of sadly forgotten, is Deep Sea Adventure from 2014. It's all about you and your fellow divers, up to six players, and you're diving to get treasure. It's a small box, and I mean a small box. This is an oink game. Small, tiny box with a submarine on it. It's a submarine, a bunch of tiles, little tiny tiles, and a couple of meeples, six meeples. Your job is to go down these little tiles and to flip them over to get treasure and as you're going down and you're flipping treasure, uh, your oxygen's running out. But also, so is everyone else's. So it's a very much press your luck, kind of like Clank, where you're going down to get the biggest treasure possible, but the longer you go down, the more you endanger everyone involved. And then getting back up is also difficult as well. But it's a small, tiny game without the kind of bloat of some of those other games out there. Uh, recently we were at PAX Unplugged and I was telling my friend Eddie, I'm like, you played this. He's like, I have never played it. Like, yes, you have. We have pictures of it. And he denied <laughs> it, denied it, denied it that he would play such a small little tiny box game with so few components, but it's brilliant. It's fun. It's a press your luck game and it's just a press your luck game, but it's a press your luck game where everyone's on the hook, literally figuratively. It's a, it's an underwater game. There are hooks there. Uh, Anthony, deep sea adventure. Deep sea adventure is great. I love this game. Yeah. All right, I have one more, and it has a word in it that I never thought I would say on a list like this, but here it goes. Should we bleep it? Should we bleep it? Should we bleep it? <laughs> we <laughs> might need funny. to bleep people. Hold on. Go ahead. Don't. Monopoly. Ah, I missed it. Gamer. Damn it. Monopoly Gamer. Oh, man, we're going to have to call the lawyer on this one. I know, I know. So this game was announced back in 2017 with some fanfare. Um, it is Mario. Bro- it's Mario. Monopoly, right? But they called it Monopoly Gamer because I think they thought they were going to make a bunch of these. <laughs> In the end, they made two of them, I think. Um, we had Monopoly Gamer, well, I guess three. Mar- we had Mario, uh-huh. Mario Kart, and Overwatch. Sure. Why not? Maybe also Sonic the Hedgehog in there. I don't know. Um, but what makes this okay, <laughs> and I'm not saying it's amazing, but I do like it if the, game, if the kids want to play a Monopoly game. What makes it okay is it has a set number of rounds. So, it's a victory point game instead of a bankruptcy game. It changes the victory conditions of Monopoly, which makes it much more palatable as a game. Um, so in this game, you go around, you do your stuff, you buy stuff off the map. But when you roll the dice, you have one that has like a special power on it, which lets you like pick up coins or hit people with, you know, the, the shells or do whatever. Um, and you have the one that lets you move and you buy the properties and you get those in front of you. Uh, every time someone passes go, they face off against a boss. The boss card flips over. Everybody takes turns rolling dice to beat the boss until someone does, or everybody decides not to because it costs money to do so. When you run out of boss cards, the game is over. 
and then you count up points, which are coins. So the game only takes like 45 minutes, which if you're talking about normal Monopoly, this is like so much better. Monopoly is like Board Game Geek says one to three hours, and I think that's <laughs> optimistic. Like that's that's a four to six hour game if you actually finish it, um, which nobody does. But if you try to finish it, it's very long. And the kids get very mad every time we play it because someone is always going to get bankrupted. That's the game. It's the whole point. The original purpose of that game was to show how terribly broken the American capitalist landlord system was and make people sad. And so yet we play it for joy. I don't get it. Monopoly Gamer takes that roll and move around the map mechanic and it changes it in a way that makes it a little more accessible, a little more fun. You're playing as Mario characters. The cool thing, too, is when I got the Mario Kart version, I took the pieces out and I put it into my copy of Downforce. And now I have Mario Kart Downforce. So, yeah, that was fun. Um, So Monopoly Gamer, do I love it? No. Is it a burn, though? No. And therefore, on the scale that we're working on here, (laughs) it is a game I like that is terrible. So um, and it's honestly, it's probably the best version of Monopoly that you could play because it's less than an hour. (laughs) So. you're rolling dice, you're playing as little Mario characters, which is fun. The kids love it. They don't get as mad at each other, which is also great. Um, and it's a victory point condition Monopoly game, which is what it should be mm-hmm. if you want to play it. Sure. All right. Well, the time has come for me to say the game that I like that no one else does and for millions of people around the world to unsubscribe all at once. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. Please don't. Dear God, please don't do that. Uh, I like Munchkin. I, I, I. I don't know why. No, I do know why. Munchkin is a Steve Jackson game. Uh, it came back in two. Th- it came out in two thousand one. You've seen it everywhere. It's had endless numbers of versions. If you could think of a genre out there, they made a version of it. So it's space. It's Cthulhu. It's zombies. It's medieval. It's monsters. It's endless numbers of IPs out there. It's done it now. Really what it's about is Steve Jackson has come up with, for me, one of the best parts of RPG roleplay gaming that I get to play at the table. I love rolling a character. I love character creation. In fact, I love character creation oftentimes more than I actually like roleplaying. Because in character creation, you can imagine a character, pull all the interesting pieces together, Think about the different strategies, how things would play off and play together. Imagine adventures. Imagine how those different things in your cohorts would kind of connect together. Sometimes it's even better than the actual storytelling itself. Munchkin allows you to do that. It allows you to choose a race, choose a class from the classic D&D kind of stuff, and then throughout the game, build up that particular character with weapons, and armor, and special abilities, and magic, and and steeds, and hirelings, and other characters, again, based upon whatever genre you're playing. It could be spaceships and such. And it does so, like, that alone is great. Just that alone is excellent. And it brings in humor, because again, a munchkin is all about that rascally character in your role-playing game that's all about themselves. They want to get all the loot they want to get the, the glory. I don't care about that so much, but it adds a little fun edge to the game. 
And there's so much humor to the game. The game is all about inside jokes for role-playing gaming, again, or that particular genre uh, that you might be playing. So if you're playing Munchkin Bites, it's about all those classic movie monsters. Uh, Original Munchkin's about the fantasy kind of theme. And then, of course, John Kovalik's artwork is iconic. Dork Tower, the webcomic that you've seen at some point, you love at some point. And that artwork really fits well with the humor in the game, the puns in the game, and the character creation in the game. Now, the gameplay itself is pretty simple. You're basically flipping cards from a deck to find monsters to fight. Again, monsters to joke, whatever it might be. Other characters and other players in the game are trying to mess you up by beefing up that monster to make it more powerful. And you do that to them as well. It gets a little clumsy and problematic, obviously, at the end because... You know, once you get down to fighting that last monster to win the game, everyone's going to throw everything in the kitchen sink at you. And if you survive, if you get through, you win the game. Now, there is a Munchkin version of this, Armageddon, which is all about the apocalypse. It does have a set ending where most Munchkins go on until someone runs out of cards (laughs) and then somebody else can win the game. But Armageddon actually does have a set rounds, has different set end conditions, plays a lot better as far as that's concerned. It's just a fun game. Families can play this. This is geared towards family, geared towards uh, younger people or older people who have played a lot of role-playing gaming and want to have a good joke. I can't argue with any of that. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I haven't had great experiences with Munchkin myself, but I also haven't played it with my kids. Like, it is designed, I know, for, like, it's a family experience. And I, I love the variability that it has. I always wished I liked it more. Like, maybe... If it was higher rated, it might have made it on my list last week. Mm-hmm. Um, but I I get why people like it as a collectible, if nothing as else. As a collectible, yeah. That's, it's got a collectible element. I have many, many versions of this. And you, and again, the other thing about the game itself is you can you can mash the, the different versions together. So you could play regular Munchkin with Space Munchkin with Munchkin Bites or Cowboy Munchkin or Pirate Munchkin. And like you could do that too. I don't recommend it. But you could do that. So, yeah, it's a thing out there. So, yeah, much good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everyone. So that's everything for this week. Until next time, this is Chris. And this is Anthony. And we'll save you all a seat at the table. Take care, everyone. Bye. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell 
your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.